Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round, well, I've noticed a really unusual and very welcome trend in 2022, and I wanted to share it with you. So this time round, we're talking about the unusual, unexpected, and important influence that the country of Wales has this year. And I, I just so pleased that it's, it's out there. Basically, this will lead us talking about history that goes back well over two thousand years. I'll be able to discuss the connections with Wales and so many different civilizations and cultures, and even pop influence. And also, I get to talk about three things that have come out in twenty twenty two. Well. Three main things, other things invariably will pop up because you know that's how it works with me. Elden Ring is going to make a return appearance. Ah, good sir. What business might you have in such a place as this? As will the Rings of Power, but also, for the first time, welcome to Wrexham. Wrexham is a town that battles against odds constantly. So, where do we start with this? Well, first of all, I first loved Wales. In the 1990s, because I went to the University of Cardiff, actually called the University of Wales College of Cardiff at that time, UWCC, and I had a great time there. And the thing about Cardiff is Cardiff is the capital city of Wales. All right, let, let's let's start with some basics. And by the way, in the back of my mind, shout out to John the Marshmallow Guy on Twitter, who I know is a proud Welshman, and he hopefully will be listening to this episode. Hi, John, by the way. Full disclosure, I'm going to give you the history. I'm going to tell you about my love of Wales. I'm going to tell you about some of this cool stuff. But this is not a whitewash. I don't like it when anybody of any nationality starts talking about exceptionalism and, and makes out that everything the country's done is perfect and everything wrong that's happened to the country just didn't deserve it or whatever. So, yeah, there will be some, let's say, some uncomfortable facts for somebody who just wants to drape themselves in the Welsh flag, but that will be counterbalanced by an awful lot of love as well, okay? So hopefully either I'm going to please everybody or I'm going to please nobody and people will be out to beat me to death with their Welsh love spoons. So yeah, I went to Cardiff University. I had a great time for three years. It rained 
a lot because that is Wales. So let's talk about where Wales is. I talk about Britain a lot. Technically, it's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland because the British Isles have had a long, complex and fairly violent history. So let's not talk about Ireland, okay? Because it's just going to get too complicated. But in the main British Isles, there are actually, in the past, three distinct nations, even with three distinct languages, although that's changed over the millennia. You've got Wales, which is to the west. It's uh, like a, a very hilly area. It's great for things like lambing and shepherding. Yeah. And it's basically facing Ireland. Then you've got to the north, Scotland, which most people have heard of. And then, by far the way, largest part is England. The other thing that's worth pointing out is, let's just briefly talk about populations for a moment. The population of Wales is about 3 million. Population of Scotland is about 8 million. And the population of England is about 55 million. There are a little over 8 million people living in London. So, yeah, there's more people living in London than there are in Scotland. It does show you, and, and this is where your proud Scots and your proud Welsh want to talk about their history and culture, and they should. And there tends to be a bit of animosity, sometimes good-natured, sometimes less so, with the English. But to pretend that this much larger country with much more resources, much greater population, has no influence over your culture, that somehow your culture has remained perfectly sealed in a vacuum is a nonsense. That's not how history works. People happily walk past borders. So let's start in the Iron Age, shall we? And that's to say that this is the period which most people are aware of as the Celts. But when I say the Celts, people tend to think of the Scots and the Irish. No, the Celtic civilization swept across northern Europe, north of the Alps, from Ireland all the way to modern day Anatolia. Turkey. You've got large Celtic communities in places like Switzerland and Germany. It wasn't just only Ireland. But the reason why Ireland is remembered today as being Celtic, and Scotland a bit, is because it wasn't as touched by other civilizations. Somewhere like Germany was invaded by multiple different peoples, and so the Celtic civilization faded away as others took over. But looking at Britain, again, let's forget about Ireland for a moment. Don't you forget about me. And you get the invasion of the Romans in the first century AD. And they take over England and Wales and a little bit of southern Scotland. They did march further into Scotland, but to them it was like marching into Siberia and they didn't go anywhere further. Yes, of course, they built the famous Hadrian's Wall. We're facing a horde of the Scots. And how does our inspired leader Hadrian intend to keep out this vast army? By building a three-foot-high wall. They actually built another one further north called the Antonine Wall that people have forgotten about. So, yeah, they could have conquered it, but it just wasn't worth the effort. It's the same reason why they didn't invade the Sahara Desert. So, anyway, no disrespect to the Scots there, but well, I'll be briefly coming back to you guys. Then you get the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, and in the 400s, they basically all... Roman military personnel leave Britain, the British Isles. And then we start getting invasions from Germanic peoples, the Angles, Jutes and Saxons, famously. And they largely inhabited the area that we now called England because that's how the name is taken from. It's the land of the Angles, Angles, Jutes and Saxons. So Angleland 
England. That's where we get the name from, which is why you shouldn't be calling anybody in like Roman Britain. Then it's not a Roman England because that's a name that would come centuries later. However, let's talk about Scotland for a moment, which gets its name from the Scotty. But if you know anything about Scottish history, that's not the name of the indigenous population in the Iron Age. That was the Picts, and the Picts basically got invaded from the north by the Vikings and from the west by the Scotty. Who were the Scotty? They were basically Irish pirates and plunderers. So actually, Scotland, like England, is a name of invaders and is not. And this is the weird thing, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm proud to be English. I'm holding up the English flag.、Oh, I'm proud to be Scottish, and I'm holding the Scottish flag. All of this is is basically signs of invaders because you've wiped out the indigenous population. But you know the one bit that wasn't invaded by the Vikings or by the Anglo-Saxons or whatever, it was Wales. Wales is basically the last bit of Celtic society in modern-day Britain, and yet. Again, some generally gently teased Welsh are being teased for being Welsh and speaking the Welsh language, and yet it's the most pure, if you want to look at it that way, pure part of Britain. So that's what's going on basically in terms of ethnicity and also culture as well. We then come into the early Middle Ages, the period period of the Anglo-Saxons, and in the early part of that, we have different. Literally different kingdoms in England. There is no unified England until the 920s. So earlier than that, you have places like the Kingdom of Mercia, which is in the middle of the country, or the Kingdom of Northumbria, which is in the top of modern-day England. And it's the Kingdom of Mercia that actually had a border with the various Welsh tribes and principalities and things like that. And you have a great Mercian king called Offa, spelled O W F A. Offa, Offa built a large barrier, basically his version of the Hadrian's Wall, to keep out the Welsh raiders. And it's called Offa's Dyke. There is an example of Anglo-Saxon fortifications that still exists in parts today. However. That's what's going on in England, and obviously, as I said, eventually it all gets absorbed into one nation. In Wales, it's a different story. For starters, the Welsh language separates this developing English language. They are two separate languages with two different roots, and there's no doubt about it. The Welsh language is more ancient. Welsh is basically a form of Celtic language. Again, to assume that all Celts from Ireland to Anatolia spoke exactly the same language. Is impossible because there was too much regional variation, and indeed today you get things like Irish Gaelic, you get Welsh, and you get Brittany Gaelic. That's in Brittany, in the north of France. These are all languages that have Celtic roots, but have branched out in different areas. In essence, if you can speak Irish Gaelic, you cannot understand Welsh, and vice versa. But they do come from a similar root, a similar sort of background. So therefore. Welsh is the one that's being spoken, and the traditions are more ancient than the ones in England. But one of the traditions they had is incredibly modern, but also incredibly not useful. What do I mean by that? Well, I have two sons, and when I pass away, the plan is that whatever I'm left with when I pass away, I will do my best to distribute in an equitable manner between my boys. In other words, they get fifty-fifty each, and that's the right thing to do. And I'm I'm sure everybody listening to this, if you have children, you've had to think about this, and it's like, well. I'm not going to give everything to the number one child, whether it's a boy or a girl. I'm going to sort of give everybody some love. 
But of course, that's not the way a king works. A king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And this will all be mine? Everything. Winner takes all. Eldest gets everything. If you think of it, an heir and a spare, all that kind of good stuff. So that system where eldest gets everything is called primogeniture. And primogeniture is the standard way that kings worked around the world, basically. Not so in Wales, because, and this is the thing, I, I hate to break it to the Welsh, but the idea, the concept of nationalism, as I've said in previous podcasts, is surprisingly recent. It's about 300, 350 years old, because earlier than that, you would have a reference and a connection to the local area around you. If you're from Cardiff, I'm a man of Cardiff. I'm not necessarily a Welshman, is how you would describe yourself in, let's say, the year 1300. Therefore, you had all these, just like in England, you had all these different principalities and chieftains, and just like in England, they fought each other. Talking about Wales as a, as a homogenous unit in the medieval era is just as wrong as talking about ancient Greece as if they were one happy family. While they were connected by culture and religion and language, but the Spartans absolutely would go to war with the Athenians or to, to the Thebians or whatever. This is Sparta! That was just the way it worked, and they absolutely didn't, were not one big happy family all in a united Greece. It's the same in Wales. Only compounded on top of that is when a leader died, like a modern-day person, they split everything up amongst their male heirs. So... If you think for a moment, let's, let's rewind 500 years. I am the king of a country, and I die, and I split this kingdom into two for my boys, okay? One of them gets the north half, the other one gets the southern half. And you know what's going to happen next. There's going to be civil war. So if you like, the problem of Wales, as opposed to the problem for other small kingdoms around the whole of Europe, is they could get diplomatic connections. I, I mean, as I said, Scotland is not a particularly populous country, and yet it was able to forge a highly effective relationship with the kings of France. Why? Because every time the English invaded France, the French could convince the Scots to invade the north of England, and suddenly you're fighting a war on two fronts, and that doesn't work well for anybody. But why didn't the French go and talk to the princes of Wales? Because you never know who's going to be on top, and you never know what's going to happen in 10 years' time when there's suddenly some succession crisis. And so there never was a, an overarching leadership of Wales. You've had the Prince of Powys or the Chieftain of Anglesey and things like that. And the other thing is the geography of Wales. Thinking about it, as, again, as a homogenous unit is a bit of a misnomer when you look at the geography, because basically the middle of Wales is pretty hilly and boggy and relatively mountainous. It gets really mountainous in the north, where you get Snowdonia. So quite frankly, if you were in, let's say, Rill, you would find it easier to communicate with northern England, places like Liverpool and Manchester, although those places are very much industrial, rather than Cardiff, which is right in the south of the country. It would simply take you less time to get to Liverpool than it would to get to Cardiff. And therefore, the north of Wales is more influenced by northern England, and the south of Wales is influenced by, well, 
The Bristol Channel, people tend to think of waterways as some sort of barrier, but actually you can carry goods much more easily over water. So you've got the South communicating with places like Devon and Cornwall far more efficiently than they could with Anglesey, for example. So again, taking aside the sort of Welsh nationalism, again, nobody lives in a vacuum. And actually the South looks towards the South of England and the North tends to look to the Midlands of England. And that's okay, that's fine. It doesn't change the fact that they spoke Welsh. And yes, we now come to the Anglo-Saxon era once England's been unified, and then they start attacking Wales, invading Wales. Just a few years before the Battle of Hastings, and you get that guy Harold, he was King Harold at the Battle of Hastings, uh, meant to have had an arrow in his eye, he didn't, let's not go into that. But at that point, he was like a, a prince, an earl, actually, of England. And Harold and his brother Tostig, Tosti, they invaded Wales, North Wales, and carried out a very effective campaign, very bloody campaign, and managed to conquer various chunks of Wales and put it under English authority. So that's the Anglo-Saxons. However, after the Norman conquest, 1066, Battle of Hastings, William did exactly the same thing. Not only did he have to put to the sword large chunks of Northern England in something called the Harrying of the North, but also over the generations, he started spreading these Norman lords into Wales. And basically, that's one of the main reasons why Wales has so many castles today, because what these these men on these on the border would be called marcher earls or marcher lords, because they were going into the edges, the marches of Wales. And so what they might do is travel, let's say, 10 miles into Wales, and it's like the locals are fighting them. So what do you do? You set up a fortification. Some of those are wooden and rot away, or some of them you spend the time to, because they're in a particularly good defensible position, you build them in stone. So that is why Wales has so many castles for such a comparatively small place, as year after year, decade after decade, the Norman aristocracy are nibbling away at Wales. This all comes to a climax under Edward I, Hammer of the Scots, as he's remembered, but he was also the conqueror of Wales. And in the 1280s in particular, he set up the Ring of Iron in the north of Wales. These amazing, some of the best built castles ever in the age pre-gunpowder. Pre Places like Conway and places like Beaumaris and places like Carnarvon. These are just the absolute pinnacle of medieval defensive architecture. They are remarkable and they cost a fortune and they did once and for all put down local rebellion. So it was Edward who is now running Wales. But as a you know, this has been told in a very romantic way, but basically he was a political realist and he needed to give the Welsh something. And that was his son, Edward II, would invariably become King of England, but he was going to be a Prince of Wales. So it's like you have your own representative, not that Edward in any way cared about Wales, but he became the Prince of Wales. And from that point onwards, in the 1200s, the heir to the throne of England, or Britain now, is the Prince of Wales. So, going back to the death of the Queen for a moment, we now have Prince Charles, who was the Prince of Wales, is now King Charles III, and that means his son, William, eldest son, is the Prince of Wales. But, just as Charles will have a formal coronation in Westminster Abbey, William will have a formal coronation as Prince of Wales in Carnarvon Castle in northwest Wales. So there we go. So there's the connection from that point. And 
What's happened was there were two famous rebellions against the English. There was Llewellyn ap Gruffydd, who is basically Llewellyn the Last, and Owen Glendower, who uh, was fighting a few centuries later. What's interesting, particularly with Owen Glendower, he, I'm doing my best here, by the way, for any Welsh listeners to get the pronunciations right. Darcy Bustle. Seven! He did take on the title of Prince of Wales as a challenge to English authority. But what's telling, and this is the thing worth remembering, is he didn't take on the... If you're rebelling and you're going for it, why not call yourself King of Wales? Because that title had never existed previously, it basically wouldn't have meant anything. Instead, he's using a title that the Welsh would be more familiar with. So the great irony is and again, apologies to Welsh sensibilities, is the thing that finally united the Welsh was basically the resentment against the English. But if the English weren't being there, they still would have been fighting against each other. So, yeah, that is the complexities and what Wales, what's going on with Wales, the history of Wales. What, you know, fast forwarding a few centuries, particularly into the Victorian era, the Victorians carried out many crimes. The colonialization of the British Empire, yes, it's a whole conversation, but one of their more subtle, nasty things is they tried to eradicate the Welsh language. They said it was pointless, and so they're actually trying to destroy some of the key history of Britain. And what's lovely to see is in the 20th century and 21st century is there's been this big pushback. But again, and I guess this is the last slightly awkward thing I'm going to be saying to a Welsh person, is by law in Wales, your GCSE, you have to do a GCSE in Welsh. That means everybody in Wales has to learn some Welsh. And that's a lovely idea. I get it. I understand it. But this has led to some rather false statistics where a third of, of Wales can speak Welsh. Well, I've got a GCSE in French. I wouldn't say that I can speak French. I can't speak French. And I know a number of people who are resentful of having to, I, you know, I've only got a finite amount of GCSEs. And so, OK, I now have to do Welsh instead of something perhaps more useful around the world like Spanish. And so while I absolutely get the resurrection and restoration of the Welsh language is important, but there should be no cultural barbarism or colonialism going on. On the other hand, forcing people to do it is hard. And what I find quite telling, and I've done a big deep dive on this, everybody, is the common phrase is about a million people or about a third of the population can speak Welsh. However, when you try and get, you know, how fluent are they? Are they Welsh first, English second? There is no statistics on that. The statistic I really wanted to find is how many people in Wales can only speak Welsh. And there is no data anywhere which tells me it's got to be in the hundreds, not the thousands. So whereas S4C, absolutely, and Publicum, which is like a Welsh soap opera, it's important, and I get it. At the same time, I do think it should be down to people's choice. So, yeah, that's all I'm going to say on that. Moving on. Now, let's talk about good stuff, shall we? Well, it be, I said the good stuff. Time for a Welsh fact. In Welsh, Wales is not called Wales, it's Cymru. And when you drive into Wales, you see this sign that says Crioso i Cymru, which means Welcome to Wales. Okay, so, hmm, I know I've kind of done it the other way around, I've told you the history first, but I think it's important because a lot of people outside of Britain don't really know what Wales is. 
And this is actually pointed out in the Welcome to Wrexham TV show. But but first of all, let's start towards the beginning of 2022 and the inadvertent renaissance of Wales and Welshness. Now, for the record, Wales has a long history of military endeavours as part of the British Army in terms of things like singing. That's obviously very famous. Tom Jones. Perhaps the most famous Welsh singer, but let's not forget things like the Stereophonics, and there are lots of other more modern Welsh singers in the pop and rock worlds. And then, obviously, well, let's a quick shout out to Charlotte Church, which even got on to Welcome to Wrexham as well. A woman that's such a good singer, she was world famous as a child. Then they decided to try and give her a pop career. Her voice was so strong, they kind of didn't know what to do with it because. Yeah, what most pop tunes are there is to cover up the fact that the person can't sing necessarily the best. And Charlotte Church is just awesome. So, yes, famous for singing, good in the British Army. Richard Burton, his wonderful voice there. I will teach you infinities. You know, how he could be just a voiceover on something like Zulu, which is about a Welsh regiment fighting in the Zulu Wars and doing very well, I might add. Wales has not been a wasteland of this stuff, but it, it strangely has been getting the respect it deserves in 2022. First of all, starting off in the strangest of things, Elden Ring, which for the record is a Japanese video game which had its law written by George R. R. Martin, who is like American. So why? Why did they decide to have all this Welsh in it? A classic example, a lot of the words in it are Welsh. And Blaith, who, by the way, is B-L-A-I-D-D, -D, but double D is pronounced as in the. So Blaith is a key character, and he's kind of like a werewolf. And his name, Blaith, is wolf in Welsh and Ainsel River, and there are a number of, you know, I'm probably getting the pronunciations of some of these things. I have to be getting the pronunciations of some of these things wrong. It, it gives it a slightly different otherworldly feel. And I'm going to say quite tellingly, it feels a bit Tolkien-esque having these words because Tolkien was a master of languages, and so he did bring in things like Nordic and Welsh Celtic and, and other elements into his languages of Lord of the Rings and therefore made them feel more alive and more real. Although, you know, they might have been an inspiration, but he still created the stuff himself. So we've got the start of this Welsh Renaissance of 2022 with Elden Ring, which is one of the biggest selling and most respected and best reviewed games of 2022. And you've got people in, I don't know, Alabama or Marseille or Tokyo, you know, knowing these Welsh words, which is kind of mind blowing when you think about it. Time for another Welsh fact. Each country in most of Europe has a patron saint. The patron saint, for example, of England is St. George. Famously, the patron saint of Ireland is St. Patrick. Scotland, it's St. Andrew, and in Wales, it's St. David. Now, out of those patron saints of those countries, literally none of them were born or even visited, in some cases, those countries 
except for Wales. Saint David was indeed a holy man from Wales who lived and preached in Wales. Let's move on and continuing the Tolkien theme, we've of course got rings of power coming out. One thing we can do better than any creature in all Middle Earth, we stay true to each other. And the key person in it is Galadriel, and she's played by Morpheth Clark, again that double D at the end of her name, and she has become quite the sensation. I've done a whole episode on Rings of Power, and so I'm not going to go into the details of that and how expensive it was and so on and so forth, and how they basically didn't use big headline names, because you know, there's a point at which you're not going to spend the money. So Morpheth Clark was in St. Maud, and she was in you know some other well-respected things, but not a household name. But her role as Galadriel has really brought her to the attention. She's been on Stephen Colbert on The Late Show, where she's literally, I mean, she makes a joke about this, where people want to ask me this stuff, and, like, my family would just find this sort of embarrassing. And she then sort of reads out the, well, not reads out, she says it from her, the top of her head, the Welsh alphabet. <laughs> and gets a round of applause for it. Now, you know, that would be like me in Japan going <laughs> A, B, C, D. And it's like, obviously, that's, that's the basic building blocks. That's not something you should be applauding an adult woman for, but because it's exotic. Most people don't know it. Most people, as I said, don't even know that Wales isn't part of England outside of the British Isles. So... You know, she is a great ambassador for many things. You know, she's this strong, capable female character in the show. So, you know, great for young girls to look up and go, look, I can be sophisticated, I can be brave, and I can be strong, and I can be a fighter, but I can be intelligent too. I can look amazing. So all these sorts of things, you know, just great aspirational things for, for young women and from a Welsh woman. But the other person, a little more under the makeup on this one, is you get Owen Arthur, who is the Prince Dane in it, the dwarf who's the big friend of Elrond in it. And he's great. Now, admittedly, the dwarves tend to have sort of like Scottish or Northern English accents, so he's not, he doesn't have this sort of beautiful Welsh lilt to his voice. He's doing a, he's putting on a, a different voice there but he's also got a sparkle in his eye and he's got to do all this hard acting under all these prosthetics and massive beard as well and he's just glorious in it as well so we got another sort of great welsh actor kind of getting his dues in this program but flipping over to the competitor again i've done house of dragons we got Rhys ifans now he's been around for a long time uh, on the scene. I, I've mentioned him before in the King's Man episode, but, you know, he's Spike in Notting Hill. He's the comedy element there. And I first sort of saw him in Twin Towns, which was this 1990s indie Welsh film, which was kind of trying to be train spotting or Quentin Tarantino. There's this big renaissance in the 1980s of sort of like crime movies, started with Tarantino, but continued with the likes of, like I said, you know, train spotting, but also Guy Ritchie movies as well. It was just this sort of like little peak of cool indie gangster crime things that were out there. And, and some of them were amazing. Twin Towns is not. Yeah, a lot of them were sort of like bad knockoffs. And I just remember seeing Risifan standing in a bathtub, sort of smoking out of a garden hose in it just. The whole thing was just grimy, and I know that was kind of the point, but it also wasn't very entertaining, and it didn't have the whip-smart dialogue of something like Shallow Grave or Reservoir Dogs or whatever. So, 
Yeah, that's how I saw him, or first saw him, and he's quite often been used as sort of like larger-than-life kind of a comedy element, and what I love about him in House of the Dragon is he starts off being the Hand of the King, and he's just the sensible, calm, elder statesman. I think it's the best. He's having the most fun in King's Man as playing Rasputin. Rasputin, your reputation precedes you. But this is where we see a completely other side of him, where just by a raising of an eyebrow, we get his entire emotion. There is no big showboating, and I think he's all the better for it, and he just sort of shows everybody why he's been around in the industry for 25 years. But another proud Welshman there. Time for another Welsh fact. Wales is famous for its sheep farming, and indeed Morforth Clark, who is plays Galadriel in The Rings of Power, she actually was brought up on a sheep farm and actually knows how to lamb sheep during the lambing season in spring. So then we come to Welcome to Wrexham. Now I, like everybody else, in the middle of the pandemic, read and then had to reread the story of what? Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds have bought Wrexham Football Club. What? Rob, for the record, I'm a huge fan of. I've seen him in his two main things. There's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is the longest running live action comedy in American TV history. I think it's on 15 seasons so far. So you've just seen him grow through this and it starts off with just these friends, and, and the friends in it are the friends who wrote it and created it. So, you know, Rob's made quite a lot of money out of this. Indeed, all the characters are utterly disgraceful and terrible and awful. That's what makes it great. It's very British. A lot of American comedy, like, you know, Friends and Frasier, these are great comedies for the record, but there's a kind of cleanness to them. Whereas you get something in Britain like, you know, Peep Show, and it's just sort of like dirty and grimy, and, you know, the jokes are really, really dark. And it's great to see that Always Sunny in Philadelphia is exactly the same thing. Danny DeVito comes in in season two, and he just, it's almost like, why? He, you, you were the missing piece. It was already good, but now it's absolutely pinnacle. And if you like dark, bleak, really politically incorrect comedy, so it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, I thoroughly recommend, and Rob is great in it. You guys like me, right? <sighs> There's also his Apple show as well. I've forgotten the name of it. It's like some, something Quest, Raven Quest or something. And the joke is about them sort of running an MMORPG online. And he's this, he's a very different character in this. He basically thinks, I am <laughs> Ian, basically, but I am. He basically is the creative genius behind all of this. And yeah, he, he plays this sort of very pompous, arrogant, rich person, which is the complete opposite of his character in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So love him. Ryan Reynolds needs very little introduction. Always been successful, but it all went to another level when it came to Deadpool. And in the words of Rob, he wanted to buy a sports team and basically the only thing he could afford was at the level of Wrexham, which, and I didn't realize this until I watched the actual program, Welcome to Wrexham, but in America, you have something like, let's say, the NFL. And you can be the worst team in the NFL, but next year, you're still in the NFL. Nobody goes out of the league. You're so bad, you get kicked down to a lower league. 
And similarly, you're so good in a lower league, you get a chance to go up and play in the National League. But in English football, and Wrexham, although it's in Wales, Wales and England work together on the same football system. The Premier League is the one that everybody knows about. That's got Manchester United in it. It's got Arsenal and Chelsea and all those kinds of clubs, Liverpool, etc. You have to go down different leagues, five tiers underneath. We've got the National League, which is the lowest still professional league of football. And that's where Wrexham is. And so they bought Wrexham for something like two million pounds. So like two point three million dollars, something like that. But what Rob said is he goes, I've got TV money, but to make this work, I needed somebody with like movie money with like uh, alcohol baron money and basically mentioned all of the things that Ryan Reynolds has dipped his toe into. And indeed, you know, I've looked Rob's net worth is about $50 million. Hey, that's a lot more than me. And Ryan Reynolds is worth more like $400 million or, or more. And so, yeah, so getting him involved too. But what's really important is they absolutely make fun of themselves. They never, ever, ever make fun of the people of Wrexham. And the thing about Wrexham is this is an example of a city like many in, in England and in Scotland as well, which had a proud mining tradition which basically got shut down in the 70s and 80s. Now, in hindsight, we can say coal, not good for the environment. And there were all kinds of economic reasons to shut them down too. It was basically cheaper to get coal from halfway around the world than it was to mine it out of Britain itself. But if you're going to shut down the main source of income for a whole town or city, you better come up with something else, because what are these people meant to live on after that? So you've got places like Sunderland and Newcastle and Wrexham, where they were just basically in a de terminal decline ever since then. And that's just not fair. And what I love about Welcome to Wrexham is, well, yes, some of it is the story of these two and they do call themselves this at times, two Hollywood idiots getting involved in football. And for the record, Ryan Reynolds is Canadian, Rob is American. They had to train themselves not to call it soccer. You know, they're just not used to this kind of sport. It's almost like the Ted Lasso in reality. But what's lovely about it is Rob, he goes, look, I've never been to Wrexham before, but he shows you where he comes from in Philadelphia. And he came from poor background. And so he goes, I get Wrexham. And I also get, like parts of Philadelphia, these people have just, n nobody's ever invested in them. Yes, these little work. And it's kind of heartbreaking. And it led me to sort of like have a conversation with my family. Now, I went to university, okay? And I, I was lucky enough to go to a private school. But both my parents are immigrants to Britain. Both of them came here with the clothes on their back and that was it. It's an underdog story. Both of them themselves actually had a university education. My father, he was the first person in the family to have that. But my mother came from slightly better background and sort of more education, more wealth generally yeah, from America. But, you know, they fell in love in the swinging 60s, you know, so on and so forth. I've kind of told this story before. And so when I was growing up, I would go and work with the family business. My parents had a delicatessen, 206 Portobello Road, Portobello Market, pretty famous market in, in London. Portobello Road, Portobello Road, 
Street where the riches of ages are stowed. It's in the Notting Hill area, you know, where Notting Hill the movie with Reese fans was, and also Notting Hill Carnival, all these things in that area. And what I feel privileged about is in the 1980s and 1990s, this was uh, the strangest part of Notting Hill's history. Some of it was deeply dangerous. Drug dens, crime, things like that. Organized criminals, etc. And yet, you also had recording studios and you had actors and musicians around there. I literally, and we're talking at the peak of her prime, at the peak of her gorgeousness, Patsy Kensett, who I had a huge crush on, and she came up to the egg store once and I sold her some eggs. Angela Rippon, if you ever remember her, if you're of a certain age, she was a newsreader on BBC News. We had Transvision Vamp, a band from the 1980s. The, the drummer Tex was there all the time. And so on and so forth. Lenny Henry as well. Lots of different people were in the area. Kind of slightly more bohemian, although I wouldn't necessarily call Angela Rippon that, but there were... There was that, and yet also there was this grinding poverty and crime as well. So to give you a little bit of background, so it, my parents had this delicatessen, and all the better off people went in there and got their quiche and things like that. And out the front, there was on one side an egg stall selling literally eggs, and on the other side, cakes and pasta. Basically, you could get three cakes for a pound or three bags of pasta for a pound. And... I worked with market traders, okay, and I remember one guy, he was illiterate, and he really, really wanted, he bought this magazine about modern warfare, and he looked at the pictures, and then he asked me, and I was something like 12 years old, and he asked me to read out the bits to him, because he wanted to know what the words said. And he was just a lovely guy, who just gave up education, skipped school and things like that, and he was just trying to get by. And then on the other side, there was this middle-aged woman, and uh, she was innumerate, and it took us a while to work this out. And this whole thing about sort of three cakes for a pound, that was easy. Give her a pound coin, no problem. She could work that out. She wasn't dumb. She was just innumerate. The problem came when people gave her change, and she couldn't work out whether that was 80p or a pound or something like that. Or indeed, could you break this fiver and, you know, five-pound note and give me the change for it? So again you know, young Jim. I basically worked on that. I helped out in the in the family business from the age of nine to 19. So yeah, there were some child labor laws that were broken, but it's the family business. What are you going to do? You know, my mum, my, my dad worked so hard. He would have to go to Smithfield Market twice a week to get sort of certain types of produce there, but that means him getting up at four o'clock in the morning. So he then over at Smithfield Market, he then goes over to the shop, opens it up, he does a whole day in the shop, and then in the evening he's doing the wholesale deliveries. You know, some of his days started at 4 and finished at 7 p.m. That's how hard he worked. And that's how two people selling eggs and deli products were able to put two children through private school. So I knew how hard my parents worked to let me do that. I in no point ever felt self-entitled about it. And there were times when I got angry with some of the people I was at school with because they just didn't understand what I was seeing on weekends. And... My mother, you know, she would work a whole day, but she would finish a little bit early to get back home and to then cook a meal for the whole family from scratch. You know, none of this microwave meal stuff. She would 
what was interesting is she would cook sort of classic things like spaghetti bolognese, but she'd also cook Turkish food as well because she'd learnt it while she was in Turkey as well. So, you know, that was my childhood. And so while I haven't been, and indeed while I was at Cardiff, I knew a girl who came from Wrexham and she was just larger than life. She was kind of rude and vivacious and aggressive. She scared me a little bit, but I always respected that just she was a force of nature now i'm deliberately not naming names in any of these situations i don't want to embarrass people and i haven't asked permission to tell you their stories but you get this in the welcome to wrexham and i i it's it's terrible when you look at maps of london from the victorian era they sort of color code them according to the affluence of the areas and the black areas were literally they're painted black i'm not talking about ethnicity here but they literally said poor slash criminal because they in the Victorian era, if you were poor, you're probably also a criminal. Now, look, let's not make mistakes about it. There are poor people who are so desperate they make a terrible or have to make a terrible choice or, you know, have terrible lacks of judgment. And they do carry out crimes. Poverty is a reason for crime to happen. But to say that they're naturally criminals, absolutely not true. Like I said, I worked shoulder to shoulder with junkies with illiterates, with, you know, impoverished people. There was a homeless guy that helped us every Monday with the egg stall, all the egg deliveries, hundreds of boxes, each box sort of like containing hundreds of eggs had to be carried, you know, they were heavy and they also had to be carried carefully. And he had nothing in his life, but he was always there. You know, he might've been stinking of booze, but he was there and he got his 10 pounds from my dad to sort of help with that delivery. And it was probably spent on booze, but his choice. And so, look, what I love about this show is they spend so much time showing how hard these people work and how they just genuinely haven't been given much of a chance in life. So, yeah, it's a great show. And it just shows you the spirit of Wales as well. The fact that they can keep going when there's no reason to do so. So for that reason, really hope you like this episode. I really hope I haven't offended any Welsh people. Time for another Wales fact, and it's an interesting fact on its own that one of the oldest companies that's still running today is the Royal Mint. It was founded not in Wales, but in the Kingdom of Wessex. This is a time before England was even a country by somebody you've probably heard of, Alfred the Great. So this was founded as a place to mint and create coins in the 800s AD. Then we get the Norman Conquest, and for a short amount of time of about 800 years, the Royal Mint is in the Tower of London, in London, strangely enough. But then, in the 1960s, the Royal Mint, for the first move in the modern world, decided to be moved to Llantrisant, in South Wales, where it is still producing coins to this day. I'm at Jem Daduchu on Twitter. Say hello to me. Hopefully you like this one. And as always, another episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.